Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, the Unity Project podcast is one about the relationships that we have with our bodies. Today, I got to interview someone who is so insanely perfect for this podcast that I was like so nervous because I just wanted to make sure that I got all my questions and information and research in order because I just felt really honored to get this time with this powerhouse of a woman to be able to pick her brain and ask her questions for my podcast. So her name is Dr. Rachel Allen. She is a holistic psychologist, writer, retreat leader, and pleasure expert. She wrote and published a book called The Pleasure Is All Yours, which is all about all the different types of pleasure and all about connecting to our bodies. She kind of coined this term bodyfulness, which means a more physically dynamic version of mindfulness that facilitates ease and delight from within by engaging the natural healing capacity of the body. Given that one coined term that she has, I guess it's probably pretty easy to tell that she was a perfect person for me to interview. We go into a lot of different things in our interview and I would give you a big summary, but honestly, just check it out because it was really perfect. The biggest thing I think at the end that stood out that we were talking about was how a lot of current scientific proof behind things in the body uh, has already been around for centuries by ancient ancient, very body-centered practices. We've known the things that we are now being able to prove by science. And I just think that that is so beautiful because that goes to show that like, when we are so present with our bodies and we are so aware and we are taken care of and tuned into ourselves, like our wisdom is just, it seems boundless. And yeah, this, this interview gave me so much hope. So I hope that you guys enjoy. Rachel, how is it going? Oh, it's great. Yes, I'm just uh, really enjoying doing a bit of a um, virtual book tour and doing more podcasts and getting to meet people like you. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know you were on a virtual book tour right now. Uh, when did that start? Well, my book came out July 27th. And so there's been, you know, a bit that's been face to face, but um you know, given things, it's a lot of it has also just been activities online or, um, or there's so many wonderful podcasts. So I've been able to do interviews like this and from the comfort of my own home with my <laughs> cat sitting here. So that's the state we're in right now here in, uh, what is it? September of 2021. Oh my gosh. Yes. No podcasts have been such an incredible thing for me to listen to during these past however long we've been stuck not being in the real world anymore so it's really cool that you've been able to been able to get on some and talk about your book which oh my gosh for those listening I received Rachel's book in the mail two days ago from recording or before recording this podcast and I managed to finish it in two days which is not like me I'm a very slow reader and I was determined to finish it one because of the interview and two because there is so many incredible topics discussed that are just absolutely perfect for this podcast. So I was, like I told her before we started, um, 
kind of nervous for this interview because I just wanted to make sure that I like had my stuff in order in my brain and was like able to ask the questions because I feel like it's like an opportunity to talk to someone who like is just so well versed into all this stuff and so I'm excited to be talking to you Rachel thank you very much for wanting to do this with me yeah I'm glad you found me I always wonder like how how do people find me is it the website or psychology today or Instagram or who knows what but you found me and I'm, I'm happy for it Yes, yes, I found you. I, I searched the tag embodiment. Actually, I just had this idea recently of ways to find guests. And so I just searched the tag embodiment on Instagram and so many people came up. So I started doing some digging. And when I saw your book, I was like, oh, that's that's the one. Got to interview her. So it worked out well. Sweet. Yes. Well, Rachel, to ask you, or actually before before we jump in, do you want to give uh, the people listening just a quick little intro about what you do, who you are, just all that jazz? Yes, yes. And isn't it interesting, too, how, you know, we live in this capitalist culture where it's like what we do professionally becomes who we are, even though maybe oh, we know gosh, we're all yeah. so much more. But absolutely, I, I do feel like my work is an extension of me, a real expression of mm -hmm. me and my, my work and my personal life are all intertwined. But I'm a holistic psychologist, so I, um, I blend the mind and the body and Eastern and Western, uh, Western medicine with Eastern contemplative practices and Eastern medicine. And, um, and I specialize in doing a lot with relationships and whether it be, you know, it can be any relationship really with our colleagues, with family. But then I also do a lot with relationships as far as um, romantic or sexual and deal with intimacy and sexual health. Um, and um, what I would call pleasure uh, reclamation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then I'm okay. a yoga teacher and I do retreats, not as many due to the pandemic, but I love leading retreats in the winter um, and just do different workshops that integrate yoga and somatic psychology um, with different topics. Okay, so just a big handful of so many amazing things that I'm like, oh my gosh, I love it, I love it. That's very, very cool. I've been hearing all this stuff since I started this podcast. Um, all these people talk about somatic experiencing or just like the, the benefits of yoga when it comes to trauma healing and all the things and Eastern and Western medicine. I just have so many interests in what you have to say, so... Um, yeah, anyway, Rachel, to start off this interview, do you want to describe the relationship that you have with your body? Oh, I know when, when you had mentioned that that was something we would talk about, it really, it, you know, I'm so familiar with the relationship I have with my body right now, but um, your question is really asking sort of, is it my path <laughs> with yeah. my body um yeah I think that wow what a journey I'm in my 40s now and I think that it started really as a as a kid and for all of us as kids you know we don't have that filter we're really intuitive I'm, I mean I was I would say that I was you know what they called then a tomboy I mean I was very active running around um would spend summers at a family cabin in Wisconsin just uh, swimming and tennis and getting dirty and riding horses and um 
And, you know, my whole life I've been an athlete. But then when it, it my relationship certainly changed more in my teenage years. And as I became more of a competitive athlete and got a lot of feedback about uh, really, you know, the outer appearance of how my body should look and perform. And I think that's when I was really the most disconnected. I, I say that I was using my body versus inhabiting it. And so it was, you know, I wasn't listening to my body's messages. Um, it was really the messages of coaches or it was the message of my mind to just go harder, faster, stronger, be, be thinner. Um, and so from the outside in and, um, and that really, you know, I, I can't say it even helped my athletic performance or my just connection to self and spirit. Um, but I was able to really, I think, reconnect with my body and, and inhabit it again. Um, it was probably right um, in graduate school when I was getting my PhD and I started doing just more cross training and also some more yoga. And um, so from about, yeah, the you know, late 20s to now, it's just been a, um, a real yeah, homecoming and um, to respect my body, to listen to it, to yeah, really pay attention to it, honor it. Um, and then there's been a whole another sort of recent wave, you know, maybe from about 35 onward. That's also really welcoming in all the more my sensual self, my erotic self, my um, self as a sexual being, even though I did grow up in a sex positive household. At least that's, that's sort of the phrase uh, psychologists call it where you grow up in a household in which I was pretty free of shaming messages. I had a mom who gave books about reproductive body. And so I, I grew up you know, not with, you know, religion or family that was discouraging me from, you know, just owning the fact that I'm a sexual being and, you know, my body has desires, but I did fall away from that just as being a woman in the, in the Western world um, mm. that has messages of shame and guilt or confusion or, you know, to hide that part of you. Um, you know, how dare you derive pleasure in your body or want to exchange in pleasure with somebody else, right? That's, that continues to this day. Um, so that's been the more recent wave of my body is it's like, I, you know, I really feel conf confident in sort of my ability to self-regulate. Um, and then from there, you know, my ability to also sort of give and receive like desires and pleasures and erotic energy. And it's, it doesn't even have to be with somebody else, you know, just like to put on clothing that makes me feel, um, you know, sensual in a way that's just um, free, free from any guilt or shame and not even necessarily for any outcome, you know, just for me in the moment to feel good as I put lotion on my body or as, you know, as I um, brush my hair. So there's that I think is the sort of sweetest part that I've been able to get to. And I think a lot of women would say too, it maybe um, they come into more of their sexual awakening or acceptance later in life too. Yeah, that makes sense. You, you talk a lot in your book about the difference between sensual and sexual. You, I think you compared it to like wine and cheese um, or no, or charcuterie, something like that, something in that category. Um, but uh, how would you, for those listening, how would you kind of describe the differences between those two things? Between sensual and sexual? Yes. Well, I would say I also describe a difference between, you know, erotic and sexual. And so I would put sensual in there in the erotic category compared to sexual. Okay. And I mean, for, so sex is, um, an, um, like a, an activity. Um, it's a behavior that 
I guess any animal does can do and does. Um, and so that's the, that's the behavior. Um, and it in the sex may or may not entail uh, sensuality and eroticism, which is really more of an energy. There's an energetic exchange, um, you know, more of energetic even within your own body, with um, maybe with somebody else. There can be also kind of a sensual and erotic component to things such as reading literature or art or uh, moments in in nature. Um, so it's, I guess when I think of sex, I think of it's like the behavioral act. And sometimes that's, you know, it's just fine that that's what you want. You just really, really want to get off. <laughs> I think I mentioned in the book, it's like McDonald's sex. You just need to go through the drive-thru, like get in, get out. Um, yeah. but it, um, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's sort of to meet a biological need as opposed to, to be in this place of, yeah, more of an embodiment that is, um, kind of residing and bathing in, you know, kind of pleasure and each of the senses and perhaps with somebody else, you know, then that can create a whole another synergistic energy, erotic energy, all its own. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. So kind of what I'm understanding is sensual is like the embodiment part of it. Kind of where like, I guess, sensual pleasure, like you're saying, it could be when you're reading a book or in nature, it's that like, I guess, or I guess like how you talk about bodyfulness, um, is that kind of just like the very present embodied version of pleasure when it comes to like how your body experiences it? Yeah, well, I mean, for me, bodyfulness is, you know, I talk in the book about the different layers, but um, for me, it really is about when we listen to our body trust our body, let ourselves express our bodies, know how to self-regulate with our bodies, you know, mind and body. And, but also this key piece that's often I felt has been left out of a lot of somatic body-based psychology, which is this really recovering, like pleasure reclamation. How do we own um, and reclaim our right to pleasures of all kinds, right? Sensual, playful, flow states, um, lively or liveliness, livelihood, erotic, sexual. So it, um, Bodyfulness comes from these earlier stages, though, of like, are you actually noticing your body? Are you listening to it? Do you know what to do with what it tells you? And the kind of co body confidence and body trust that comes from that opens us up to these higher order, really juicy things like creativity and life force energy and intimacy and um, a magnetism. So that is, and but bodyfulness is used by different people in different ways. Um, I'm not the first person to use it, although I didn't really know of anyone else using the word <laughs> when I started using it, but I've since learned it's, it's been picking up steam and um, Mine is a much more kind of experiential lifestyle application. There's also a book called Bodyfulness that is um, weaves in even more so like social justice and sort of, um, you know, theoretical aspects of it. So I'm excited. It's I think, you know, maybe like mindfulness, we're going to kind of keep growing and, and this concept of bodyfulness will will increase. But there, yeah, the sensual component to, to go back to your question. Um you know, that, that is a big part of bodyfulness. Yeah. Are we connected to our senses? Now, granted, bodyfulness does not mean we always feel good in our body, just as there are senses, there's sensory awareness where we recognize that does not, 
you know, something does not smell or taste good. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, to be sensual, we've, a lot of what I think about is how we've reduced these words down to just like one meaning, but to be sensual means also sometimes, our, you know, our senses are saying, oh, I don't like that. It's too loud. Or so it's a good way. It's a, such a good barometer between our inner and outer world is when we're connected to our senses. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's part of embodied mindfulness. The first, the first kind of layer of bodyfulness is like, what what is your body telling you including each of your senses um, okay but there is that an element sense. of sensual like kind of the tantric idea of like sensual deliciousness and really seeping in in sensual pleasures <laughs> mm. okay so so when i guess in your in your personal story like when was it that this all became of interest to you like when did you start really wanting to understand your body Oh, yeah, yeah, because I, I mean, it's, I really, I had been in my body naturally, um, I think since I was a kid, but then to really, like, understand it, I, you know, I, it was probably right before graduate school, um, um, and I was, when I had practicum placements in graduate school, I, I went to school in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I had these amazing internship or practicum, they call them practicums, these placements where I'd work with clients. And I mean, I, that's where for me, that's where you learn, right? You're there with people. You learn from traveling. You learn from being in front of people. So even though we had all sorts of classes and read all sorts of books, I just loved my um, opportunity to work with clients right away. And, um, and I just started to naturally incorporate suggestions with my clients that had to do with the body just based on what I had noticed in my own own life and then I started to really research it more and once I did my yoga teacher training I had more of a language to understand like my own felt sense experience and then could better describe that with clients but um but yeah, in answer to your question, it, it's really through my yoga teacher training in the early 2000s and then um in the years, yeah, pretty much since early 2000s, I've been learning a lot about both Eastern and Western um, understanding of the wisdom of our body. And and then there's a sort of sociological part of me that also has been looking at, like, what got us to this place that so many people I know and my clients aren't connected to their bodies? Like, why have we, why have we um, really denigrated it um, even before computers came along? Uh, to bring us so in our head. Yeah. What would you say? I know you. the first part of your book talks a lot about that. You talk about like the, the big kind of like world reasons for disconnection and then the like personal in our mind reasons for disconnection. Do you mind giving like a few examples of those things? Well, as far as our sort of centuries of conditioning, I think that's certainly religion. And a lot of it stems from, I think, the fear of ambiguity and the fear of things that are really like powerful, um, that, you know, I think erotic energy um, and desires in our body. I mean, it's a powerful energy, but I think because it was misunderstood, um, there was a way it was feared and still is to this day. So I think that that, um, you know, it's sort of the good, bad, right, wrong thinking put erotic energy and, and sex and um, pleasure in the bad category because it was a, a, a viewpoint that was about being dour and focused and working and um, 
um, you know, that continued into the industrial revolution where it really became all the more so like, I think therefore I am. And to listen mm -hmm. to the body, body's needs for rest, for pleasure. That was really counter to, um, the industrial revolution of working and producing. Um, and you know, that remains to this day in, in the U S with capitalism. Yeah. Um, and then there's just um, all sorts of other, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you bringing up Freud. I'm going to completely butcher this quote from your book, but it just made me laugh so hard. And I told my partner about it later when he talked about how he said something about um, issues with women was about like penis envy. <laughs> and I was like, what in the world is that even? Oh my God. Gosh, am I make am I getting that quote wrong or what exactly? Was well, that's it? yeah. He had a big theory. Yeah, his, he had a huge theory. I mean, I th I think that Freud is an example of how you know when you have you know he was a white male telling the narrative, telling the story of of women and probably only just of white women. So the whole narrative of of other you know people of color left out, but. But there's, yeah, that, that that was sort of the dominant b belief at the time, you know, and, and then women, the word hysteria came about during oh. Freud's reign where, um, you know, basically a, a woman who had emotions, intense emotions, um, is still to this day, like called maybe hysterical or crazy. Um, but he considered that, that like, I think it was like the uterus was wandering and that that's what led women to be emotional. The uterus is wandering. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the wandering uterus issue. Um, oh. I mean, psychology, oh psychology is a really young science. I actually, I personally don't think of psychology as a science because what I love is the mystery and the beauty of human beings. No two people are alike, you know? It's a, it's a craft mm -hmm. to me, not a science. But um, but the early stages of psychology and, and try, that tried to be a science, you know, they were it was just trial and error, and a lot of it was sexist <laughs> and racist. Mm -hmm. um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, and still, still is. So, yeah. On that happy note. No. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it like reading that kind of like makes me like, oh, wow, we've come so far. And then I remembered how far we still have to go because I'm like, oh, but still, man. Uh, another thing you've mentioned in there that is kind of coming to my mind is uh, just healthcare and knowledge in or women's health care and like their sexual health I think you wrote about that in your book either that or I recently was talking to somebody about it but just how um there's not a lot of research done on uh women's bodies and women's health and whatnot and how that's really just hurt us in a ton of ways but do you want to tell me more about that a little bit? Yes. Well, I and what I know the best, more my, kind of being in my lane of area of expertise, I know about the ways in which women, um, and especially women of, of color, have yet yeah, been left out be, when it comes to sexual studies of, for sexual health and the body. Um, you know, things like how, or even just the marketing, pharmaceuticals, things like how Viagra, but women can benefit from Viagra. It has never been marketed to them. And Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. I mean, and then this is less about what I talk about in the book, but just, I know, um, that there's ways in which, you know, um, women of color are, you know, and men are expected, um, 
in the medical world, like they, they don't get as much pain medication, expected to tolerate um, procedures in a way that they wouldn't have, you know, treat white people. There's all, yeah, there's, there's a huge gap in the medical world around, you know, there's, there's just a lot of sexism and racism as far as like who gets, who is in medical trials, who's in the research studies, um, how people are treated. Um, but certainly because there's been such long-standing um, shame and oppression around the right for a woman to be a sexual being, I think that there's just a lot we don't know and that's being revealed. Like, I mean, most people have never had any clue, even to this day, that, you know, a lot of birth control pills can interfere with yeah. a woman's libido. Wow, this is just bringing up so much in my mind about, like, there's so many places we can go from here. It's like current world issues that are very loud and then there's just like just in general what that means about women like how we take that and see what that means for who we are and our place and our worth in society it's just it's really really sad um you talk a lot yeah or go ahead well, I just know, too, um, there was, like, recently at, like, a technology conference a few years ago, I think there was, um, there was, I believe it was, it was, like, some sort of vibrator for women that was, like, really revolutionary or something, and then, but they, it's like they were disqualified or something. I mean, I, I probably shouldn't even, like, quote this because I don't know the exact specifics, but it, it was just showing that, like, even in, like, Re, you know, in our current modern times and like in the technology world and technology industry, you know, something that is promoting a woman's like right to give herself pleasure is, um, you know, hidden and um, blocked. <laughs> um, so it's apparently pretty threatening. Our erotic energy is, is um, still remains pretty threatening to the, patri oh to the patriarchy, gosh. at least. Yeah, absolutely. I've been, I've been talking about this a lot recently because, um, I'm in a relationship with a woman, and uh, we've talked in length about kind of the differences and like what what we've known sex to be from like growing up. Like I was always under the impression like I don't think anything, even movies or things I'd find online, I don't think anything really taught me otherwise of like sex is um, penetration and the guy has an orgasm and the girl's supposed to like it and then it's done. And it's kind of like we're just like doing this service for them. And I felt like that was the way that sex was just kind of taught, I guess. And I could, maybe it was just from my lens. And like I, I did not come from like sex positive parents or anything like that. They were definitely in the category of we don't want to talk about anything, but don't have sex because you'll go to hell. And I'd be like, okay, <laughs> cool. Oh no, no, it's you're good. It is. It's 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 just amusing. Because like just knowing what we know now and just opening our eyes to realize that like, oh, that's actually not true is so mind blowing given what we were told before. What like I mean, my, oh, my what God. I always say is, look, we all, everybody, everybody I know <laughs> has a body and everybody I know came from a sexual being. And yet everybody I know also has stories of shame and guilt and confusion and misinformation about their bodies and about being a sexual being, right? Mm -hmm. How sad. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm trying to change. <laughs> oh, for sure. Well, you're, you're doing a good job. I love how like, 
I don't know, even just talking about how, like you, you gave so many examples of people assuming when you, the uh, cover of your book, The Pleasure is All Yours. It doesn't say anything about sex at all. But you say that so many people like assume when you like, I think like calling yourself like a pleasure expert that that's like all it means and like it makes people like uncomfortable. And I was laughing when I saw uh, or when I was reading through something you wrote about like a social gathering you had and how you like to ask big questions and you asked something about like their most sensual experiences. And it's just, it says so much that even that kind of thing is kind of like a red light to people like, oh, she's talking about sex. Oh, but really like it can mean so many things just about our body and oh my goodness. I just love it. There's so many ways. Cause like, I feel like the main the main thing that I'm getting from your book, because you talk, pleasure is like the main idea, right? Okay, so, yeah. So you talk about how like pleasure is in the like, the little moments of, oh, this feels good, or oh, I like this, and that leads to joy or happiness, right? Yeah, it is moments of pleasure that can lead to these longer lasting states of joy and happiness um, and pleasure of all kinds. Yeah. And so it's it's we're all fine with the concept of joy and happiness, but pleasure has sort of this dark shadow of being, in, you know, indulgent and luxurious. And, and it's, it is true that people can pleasure seek in a way that is about avoidance, about procrastination of not wanting to feel discomfort. And that's okay in moderation, but it's not when it is our go-to strategy and it's done aggressively and it interferes with, you know, being able to to really operate healthily in our life in other ways. So that's one of the, another reason why I like talking about pleasure is because it is a nuanced concept that does require some balance and it also needs to kind of be, sh I guess, freed from um, being um, seen as just some, something kind of bad, luxurious, and naughty. <laughs> um, because oh, yeah. it, there's, there is research that really shows the ways in which pleasure um, helps with resilience and helps with more of like communal care and compassion and altruism. Yeah, that's very cool. Actually, last year, that pleasure was a big thing we talked about. Uh, last year, I was in a treatment center for an eating disorder. And that actually was like a big spark to the beginning of this podcast because I kind of found out that the main like question that I keep coming back to and everything here is about the relationship with my body and being connected or not connected to my body. Am I listening to when I'm hungry or full or am I just like abusing it and ignoring it and shaming it? It made me realize like, oh my gosh, that's actually like, I really should probably look at that and see what that's all about. But, um, we talked a lot about pleasure and how whenever like a therapist or a dietitian would ask like, how do we feel about pleasure? Like, do we have a problem with pleasure or something? People, everyone in the room get really uncomfortable. And it would be this thing of like, I don't want to eat that cupcake because I'm afraid of liking it and enjoying it. And I'm afraid of enjoying myself. And it just, it showed that there's such deeply rooted stuff with that when it comes to just, just enjoying something. I don't, I don't even know. That's really interesting to hear that that is, that was, um, a pattern that you noticed among people that, um, that we're all there together. And I think there's been, yeah, these larger kind of 
communities at all feel the same way, you know, and whether, whether it got to the point of them having to go to treatment or if they, you know, like it, it harms their life in other ways or interferes with their life in other ways. I do think that, yeah, this, this message that there's something wrong with us, you know, feeling good or enjoying ourselves or, you know, better not enjoy yourself too much because then, you know, you'll never go back to work or, and I notice this with people's, you know, with, when I think of, I love talking with people to help them with emotional intelligence. Yeah. You know, I, I notice it also where there's just sort of one little range of emotions that are okay. These other ones aren't okay. Um, but if you let yourself, you know, really like feel those darker emotions or you let yourself cry, like, you know, then you won't stop and like, you'll never be able to kind of get back to feeling good. I mean, it's like we had these, I don't know, upper limit issues um, rather than letting us just kind of feel the full range of feeling good and recognizing, you know, there's pain as well as pleasure and learning how to practice and, and ride the wave of each because they, they all come and go. They're all impermanent. Um but yeah, it's it's interesting that that people, your story makes me think that you know what messages, what messages are there that say like there's something bad or wrong for wanting to feel good, even if it's like rest, you know, like what's wrong with you know rest or taking a nap? We we put overworking and over controlling on this pedestal, and that's uh -huh. why we're we're sick, you know, and over reliance on pharmaceuticals, and people feel burnt out, and relationships are severed. Um, it's too bad. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that is that definitely makes sense to me, especially talking about like uh when you bring up like the pharmaceutical stuff and health type stuff, like quick fixes, quick answers that we try to almost like numb our bodies more so we can continue ignoring them, so we can continue being what we think we're supposed to be and what I don't know. It's like oh, goodness I'm trying to there's this example of something that recently happened that I'm trying to think of and it's been bugging me because it would be perfect to bring up but it's just not coming to my head at all well, I mean I think I what you're talking about is this idea it's like we're not robots we are not machines you know and so what, what we do these things and contort ourselves in order to be these machines and I do think you know what's it going to take I mean and that's where I talk about in the book. It all starts from within. Our own bodyfulness is a revolutionary act. And, you know, one bodyful person at a time is what can say, like, I'm not going to lean in or buy in to these messages um, that say, you know, I need to look or act a certain way or I need to, you know, my worth, my worth lies in my outer form, my outer appearance, and that my worth lies in my productivity. So mm -hmm. I'll have to say... BS to that. <laughs> yeah, that, that gives me a lot of hope because it is something that's being talked about more now than ever. Even though, I mean, as I said before, we have such a far way to come, but it like, I don't know. You, there was something in your book about, I think it was when you were calling about like generational trauma and how, um, or maybe it was a different part. Something about how a mom, when a kid, a kid like, I think you were talking about one of your clients, like uh, she saw herself and her mom as kids do. And her mom would talk about how much she needed to lose weight or like didn't like her body or how ugly she felt like she was. And uh, that made her daughter be like, oh, no, that's like how I am then if that's how you're talking about you. Because we look to our moms as like, tell me what it means to be a woman. Like what what is how do we see the world? How do we see ourselves? And um I think you quoted Glennon Doyle in your book, right? Yes, I did once uh, 
tell a story or paraphrase a story from her book. Yeah. About, about girls, you know, not recognizing their own inner needs. They look to each other to see what their needs are versus the boys looking, yes. just yes. knowing that they needed, they were hungry. Whereas the girls couldn't just say I'm hungry or not. They had to look at the other girls to see if they actually were wanting a snack. Yeah. She talked a lot about this time with her daughter that what you said in your book really reminded me of it, of how her daughter asked her if she could braid her hairs like hers. And that's when Glennon kind of had this like inner moment of, uh, if I stay in this abuse or in this, um, if I stay disconnected from myself and stay in this marriage that is not true to me, I'm not loving my daughter, but I'm, I need to show her what it means to be free. So what she would need is for me to like show her what a free woman would do. So she, cause she's going to look to me as like what to be. And I'm not doing that story justice at all. So everybody go read untamed because it's in there <laughs> and it's so good. Cause that's true. I don't think I know anyone who has it anymore and it makes me so happy. Um, but anyway, it, Talking about that is really, it feels personal to me because that was kind of my, my experience with my mom growing up was very much like your client's story about their mom, like just kind of bashing themselves. And so when I hear about that and I like talk with other people with that same story and then I realize how much of us, how many, how many women today are like really learning this stuff and kind of stopping, stopping the trend almost, stopping like the trauma, like doing the work, it gives me so much hope for, I don't know, it, people in the future to like not have to have that be their story and that just continue on to be the new normal. Basically, we have power and I'm very happy that we're using it. That it may take generations, but hopefully with each one, then the cycle can be broken and, um, you know, hopefully we can do it before we've already, you know, killed our planet. <laughs> it's turning oh, into yeah. the most depressing. The most depressing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, change on a positive note, change is possible. And certainly it can start from, yeah, within our own selves and um, being curious and learning and reading and understanding, you know, because I, I see so many clients that really blame themselves and take on so much responsibility for, um, and, and I'm, you know, I, I, I do believe, yeah, we need to take responsibility. We need to be honest with ourselves, but I always really want to point out to people the context because you know there's these really insidious ways that our um our american culture can um harm us and we think it's our fault and and we don't see the you know whether it be white supremacy or patriarchy um you know capitalism these we don't see the ways in which this is seeping into us and impacting us as well um as opposed to when people think it's just their fault, you know, they're, they're just effective. Um, but it's the, it's the systems that are sick. Um, but that's, you know, there seems to be some change right now. That's exciting. There's a lot going on right now and a lot of it's challenging, but what I think is really great is that people are protesting and having, um, they're rebelling. And, and I think same with like relationships, the paradigm around relationships is really changing. So there isn't just this heteronormative view and that yeah. it's all about monogamy and all, you know, um, being with one person forever. There's just, I'm excited about some of, some of that, how that's flourishing. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I think rebelling is a really good way of putting it because it's like somehow these rules came into place of what it means to be a person. And a lot of that just comes from um, white men in power, really. And I think that it's so cool to see people pushing those boundaries. And even just like, I mean, I'm biased because I am queer, but just even looking at the queer community and what that means for like being like, actually, this could be what it looks like to be a person. This could be what it looks like to be a woman or a man or non-binary. Like, I just think that that's, that's just so cool to me and I'm excited about it. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, um, there's some terms in your book that you talk about in part two, the body holds the key that, that I think is the really sciencey part, right? Yeah. So you talk about now, the term deep body intelligence, apparently I took a note and didn't write anything under it, but I remember being very interested in what that was. Was that something in part two? Yeah, I think that, well, that's connected to interoception, which, you know, then we're getting really kind of into the, the science lingo, but um, that's, I often talk about deep body intelligence as being connected to interoception, which is really having like a keen awareness for all of these interworking systems within us. And once we do, we can self-regulate, whether it be with you know digestion or our relationships and boundaries or rest versus activity, um, intuition. It's just, I mean, I think that is huge uh, to be able to talk about self-agency and empowerment is like when we're really can ask ourselves like what do I really need right now and it comes from within us we get to take that with us wherever we go mm-hmm. and it's hard because there's all sorts of noise in the world literally and figuratively and so it's it is a practice because we can fall off um, from that inner you know listening to to our kind of inner knowing and um, you know the interoception of of the wisdom within all our inner working system. So, you know, if we get stuck in our head, for example, and it doesn't, doesn't have to take much for that to happen. <laughs> that's true. Um, but that's, I think that's what maybe why you wrote that down is the interoception element. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So basically what you're saying is introception is kind of just like a deep awareness of your body and like, what's going on inside of it right yeah well and really cause and effect between the mind and the body but but um I, I tend to champion the body just because the mind has you know been so elevated but it but absolutely it is causing an effect an interplay between them and um but recognizing the gut brain the heart brain the of course the intellectual brain the, the groin the horm- hormones um digestion you know all there's temperature um you know, not, not, I'm not encouraging people to just sit there and, and get so hyper-focused on every little thing their body is, <laughs> is, is doing, but, you know, just a gently checking in until, you know, it, it's a practice, but hopefully can become more second nature of really noticing that language. I mean, it's like learning a language, really. Think of how you want to learn Spanish, you need to practice every day. You want to reclaim and, and reconnect to the language of your body, it's a practice every day. Mm-hmm. Oh, Yeah. So you talk about our three our three brains. You kind of just mentioned it just now, I think, um, when talking about like the gut and stuff. Uh, do you mind explaining a little bit more about what 
exactly that is because I had never heard it talked about as in our three brains before. And so I think I think that would be cool to hear you talk about. Well, what I think is fascinating is I, I, I had heard reference to, um, you know, having these different brains. And the one that I really knew the most about before writing the book was the enteric brain, which is in our, our gut and the uh, brain gut connection. But then in doing research for the book, I realized that they, the heart brain is also considered a brain. And what I think is fascinating is that all three you know, our head, our heart, our gut, they all have their own nervous system. Um, mm. And of course, they're all communicating with one another, but but there can be times in which one is more in the driver's seat. One is, you know, kind of pulling us more than the other. Um, and although we wouldn't say that there's sort of a, a groin brain per se, I think we have to pay attention to though the the force of, of hormones and whether it be um, gender or sex hormones, but that... Um, that could be a strong pull slash brain all its own. And why I think that that helps us with this interoception and inner wisdom is, you know, think of we've all had times where maybe especially with relationships where our head is telling us one thing, our heart another, our gut another, you know, and yeah. we're pulled. And um, my hope with people is just listen to them all and then do your best to integrate and, you know, honor them all. They're all, you know, trying to keep us, you know, sort of safe and um and the best we can be but but because I see people be so hard on themselves you know like well I know that I should dump the person or leave the relationship um but I can't and you know and, and so just I try to point out sort of those different sometimes competing parts of us to befriend mm -hmm. them all to really integrate them all yeah that makes a lot of sense that like gives language to things that I've heard talked about so many times in such a a confused way because it's like how come I I mean sometimes it has a lot to do with like you talk about in your book like trauma of being like I, I trust this person but I don't or like I should stay in this relationship but I know it's not good but I can't my heart's in it but my head's not it's like knowing that there's different communication or there's like different brains I guess really going on different things in different parts of the body is super super interesting um what what happens in the three? I know that the the head, the brain that we all, I guess, very commonly talk about in our in our head, that's kind of like the intellectual side of things, the like logic, right? A logic, judgment, planning, reasoning, um, that part of the brain, that brain wants, you know, a, a coherent story, like a beginning, middle and end, um, a very linear, um, you know, planning. This is, okay, and if I do this, then this will happen or... Um, so it's that's how it it helps us out in that way. Okay. Um, and the heart, and the, uh, yeah. Heart brain it, that is the really like the relational brain, um, and about you know yeah love and connection, social engagement, feeling included. Um, so also part of our safety and survival, but more just much more in the um, yeah you know love and connection and relationships and being kind of worthy based on you know others and um um safety that way and our on our gut brain though it, it's very much yeah like survival um self-preservation kind of at more even more of a core um but also um different sort of desires can be rooted in there too um um like humor and some humor and spontaneity as well. 
uh, intuition, a lot of people would say, you know, with gut instinct. So, yeah, kind of our primal selves are there at the more of the gut brain. Okay. Now, is this is this somewhat similar uh, to chakras? I know nothing about the whole chakra thing. So, is this kind of in that same theme, or? Well, it's in the theme as far as understanding all the different layers of our body, and the chakra system is an energetic layer, um, which is all they're all they're all working together all the time. But chakras come from. Eastern, um, from, from yoga is where, how I've learned them. So I think of it just the origins. I mean, when I was talking about the different brains, this comes more from um, what we've synthesized to, you know, more modern science and research. And um, the chakra system comes from more kind of ancient Eastern um, yogic, quote unquote, science. But I don't know that there's any current modern day neuroscience that... Uh, confirms the chakra system. Now, maybe somebody will write in or comment on this that that is not the case because there could be there could be um, ways in which now that's emerging. Um, you know, to be able to understand the subtle body energy in a concrete way as measured by science, that could be. Um, okay. I I mean, I, it's funny because I went to a much more my graduate program was a actually much more kind of Western medical model. And so when I got my yoga teacher training certification after that, um, it was, it was hard for me to, to really believe chakras like subtle body energy, but I mean, what you can't see it. What is this? Um, so I was skeptical for, um, a while and I still, you know, there's, I think a lot more for me to sort of learn about our subtle body energy. I think anybody who does Reiki, um, uh, let's see, Reiki, there's some other energetic um, practitioners. I mean, they, I think, are, they're working with that daily. Um, but I do know that, I, I definitely believe in the chakra system as far as, you know, everything we've experienced in our life, we have an imprint within us. Um, and it can vary, you know, develop our developmental stages in life and what happened, you know, and intergenerational stuff. I mean, there, it's all an imprint in our, in our body and shows up in different ways. And, um, and, but, but energetically, you know, it, it it's, there's basically the chakra system is there's seven places in the body where electromagnetic energy really can collect. And it's based on things that have happened recently in our life, but also really throughout our entire life. Um, and Anna Dea Judith is the person that I've really um, learned a lot from, who's like a chakra guru. <laughs> um, oh wow! But it's 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 helpful because when we have all this awareness of the different energy patterns, you know, um, a lot of energy maybe up in our head versus down in our body. You know, it 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 just is another wonderful tool to understand ourselves. You know, self awareness, um, and that's really powerful and helps with agency as well. So her book, Eastern Body, Western Mind, sort of rocked my world in opening me up to energy. Yeah, that that's cool. You mentioned earlier that you were really you learned a lot about like the differences between Eastern and Western philosophy. What what is like. Are you able to like name like a big primary difference between the two or is it kind of just like needing a whole other interview to be able to do that? 
Well, what I think is fascinating is how um, something like Ayurvedic medicine, 5,000-year-old Ayurvedic medicine, the sister science to yoga, um, you know, they, they're they practices that they knew that long ago that now we are starting to confirm with science, but they didn't need science at the time. And, and so that's really where, where I think um, the bridge is, is that... Um, you know, these ancient civilizations had a wisdom and they didn't, they didn't need that outer confirmation the way we do today. We're just, we are so distrusting of things that can't be proven. Um, and you know, it's, it's similar to how, um, I've seen so much change in the last 20 years as far as understanding, you know, the ways yoga can really help with mental health as well. And um, you know, ask anybody who was doing yoga 20, 30 years ago and regularly and noticed the effects uh, on their mental health. They didn't need science to prove it. They felt it from the inside out. They knew it, you know, on a felt sense of visceral level. Um, mm -hmm. Now, maybe it was hard to put into words, but it was something they knew. Um, where, but now, even just in the last 20 years, we have more research confirming well what this is what it's doing this is why you feel better this is why you feel more regulated this is why you you know aren't binging and purging anymore or whatever it might be and so so are they really all that different well you know eastern and western i don't know i think that actually it's just different language different way of perspectives different way of understanding it um and just the the needs we have now is that med medicine has to come from from you know empirical evidence whereas they didn't need that before like ayurvedic That's medicine believes really strongly in like the gut and now we have the enteric we call it the enteric brain but back then they just called it you know you're at your solar plexus the importance of you know assimilating foods right for your um, disposition but ayurvedic medicine just really focused on you know digestion and now we call it the enteric brain so i think there's we're we're bringing a lot of it together but we might not see the connection and we have different words for these common themes of mind body health okay that that honestly that feels vindicating in a way to hear that to just hear that like we are learning things scientifically that were already proven by people not needing the proof by just like being that in touch with their bodies and spirituality and whatever it is that, God, I wish I could like interview people from like so long ago now about like how they figured that out. Man, um, it's just, it's so special. It just, it really shows so much of just truth behind the wisdom of the body. And like I've been told by my therapist and other people, mainly my therapist countless times about how like you have everything that you need, like everything you need is in your body and you have it. I'm just helping you get it out and hold up a mirror and like helping bring an environment, which I think you brought up too, like how you need to be in an environment where you feel uh, safe in order to be aware of your body and to look inward fully. And I just, the more people I talk to, the more I find how true that is. And it's really special. Yeah, it's really, I think of that, just the pyramid of the hierarchy as far as if we don't have that secure base 
of, you know, some element of safety. And it might not mean we feel safe in every realm. Like maybe, you know, maybe we have a little debt and, you know, so there's some, some, you know, not having financial security, but you basically have, you know, loved ones in a home and you're, you know, there, we need to have some semblance of feeling um, safe and secure before we can do things like creativity and risk taking and be vulnerable and, um, you know, and be kind of generative with our creativity and meaning and purpose. Um, yeah. But the problem is, yeah, there's a lot of anxiety out there right now, understandably. And so I think that's thwarting some of our, for some people, maybe, you know, personal growth if they, they just can't feel safe. Um, oh, wow. Do you think that's, that's interesting. Do you think that that's part of why back however long ago these, um, Eastern, I don't remember how to pronounce it. I start the Eastern medicine that started with an A. What, say, I'm sorry, say it one more time. Ayurvedic. Ayurvedic, okay. I wonder if that's part of why that was possible for them to come upon because there wasn't, I mean, there was like obviously stress and anxiety for whatever that time period looked like, but just like, as depression anxiety increases with like technology and all the things especially right now the lovely pandemic um i wonder if that's part of why it was easier to look look at their bodies and being so much more inward than than it is right now right yeah maybe less barriers to being connected to it and um and less criticism uh, i mean now that i mean <laughs> there's such a big divide you know right between like science and not and there's conspiracy theories and all this um or even just like i have some friends that really believe in astrology and it guides some of their life decisions and then some people that would just mock it and laugh like it's ridiculous what a joke you know, so there's people just so rooted in their opinions of this is good bad right wrong and maybe that's always how we've been as humans but um there there yeah some, there was something that kind of our ancient selves knew um, that then we uh, have lost sight of. We lost mm -hmm. along the way. And now, due to kind of just how sick we are, I think there's, it's coming back. There's recognition. I mean, there's a reason why, like, wellness and, like, holistic health is just so big and increasing right now, right? Yeah. Something yeah. has gone wrong. We are off course. We are sick in different ways. Um and so people are, yeah, searching and what they're finding is, oh, here, th there's this thing that actually we already always knew and then we fell away from. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, man. That is so, that's just so cool. That's so cool. My gosh, Rachel, I, I just cannot thank you enough for all of this, for just letting me pick your brain. You should have maybe an Ayurvedic practitioner on your show who specializes Ooh. in Ayurvedic medicine. A lot of my, like, especially in my book, it's it's kind of for more, um, the, yeah, more of the beginner. And I, I go through, I kind of have a short chapter that talks about chakras and ayurvedic medicine just to sort of help with how you know there's a way in which preventative health and connecting to our body helps but there are people who you know are yeah that's like their main area of expertise that could go into more depth about it okay that's a good idea that's a really good idea do you have and we could talk about this later like over email or something but if you have any recommendations of people i would be super open to hearing yeah, yeah, message me and we'll I'll be able to to tell you. Okay. 
Awesome. Well, Rachel, I have two more questions for you, if that's okay. Okay, yeah, go for it. Okay, so the first one is you talk a ton throughout your book about different um, practices and uh, strategies people can use to get more in touch with their bodies. And I like love that. I love practical things. What, what are a couple of your favorite ways to connect to yourself? Well, it's evolved over time and it's really evolved and just expanded. Now my toolbox of things to do is bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, I, I started off I mean, growing up, I was an endurance athlete, and that was a natural way to manage ADD, which runs in my family. You know, I didn't even know it at the time, but that's that was sort of um, one of my main like self-regulation body connection tools is just sort of endurance activities, swimming, biking, running, skiing, cross-country skiing. Um, but now, I mean, now that I've really done a lot more research and working with clients, you know, it doesn't have to be even that much. I think um, I've been trying to help people just recognize how auditory release, you know, and it helps me just to sigh. You know, we're not supposed to be buttoned up and keep all these sounds and, and guttural sounds. So just trying to, it can be a revolutionary act just to try to get somebody to like make a loud sigh. And But so that's one of the things I do, I you know, whether it be at a workout or in the day I, I go oh, you know and it's a deep release it's a discharge from my body mm. um so I do a lot of that. I do a lot of also like self healing touch. Like I'll massage my own neck and shoulders. I'll massage my jaw. Um, so our own, our own self touch is actually really healing. And of course, I mean, getting a massage from somebody else is, is exquisite as well. Oh yeah. Um, but so those are kind of the more unusual ones that I love to do that I suggest others do is like, can you just let out sighs and kind of sounds, guttural sounds as a way to discharge stress from your body? And then just can you bring, you know, this loving act of like your hands to your heart, your hands to your stomach, your hands to any of these areas of tension and whether it be kind of self-massage or just sort of like soften the area and, and in a matter of, you know, 30 seconds right there, there can be a shift. Um, I mean, I could go into other things like breath and other, but I think that's, those are more common. Most people do know more about, you know, as far as stretching and breath yeah. and but those are great foam rolling shaking I mean that's what I've done trainings with somatic experiencing that really um started with the awareness that well animals shake to deal with releasing trauma from the body why don't you know humans what if we do um or well I guess yeah human hu human animals <laughs> wait you mean you mean like when dogs shake that's part of what that is yeah, I mean, they might shake for different else. reasons, but yeah, a lot, that's how, what a lot of animals do. It's it's like a reset, it, whether it be a stress or a trauma, but there is a shake, there is a shake shutter element that helps to dislodge the trauma from being kind of stuck in the body, in the connective tissue, and in the nervous system um, reactivity. Granted, okay. animals don't have kind of the complicated aspects like attachment issues, <laughs> and that, um, which could really, like, that's that gets real complicated there. Um, yeah. But so that, I think that was that, the, I think you asked the question of like, what are some of the things that I do just to kind of be yes. embodied? And um, those are kind of some of the newer ones that I are just so quick and simple that, you know, you can take a one minute break in between meetings and just to sigh and to bring some of your own healing touch. Ox our own oxytocin can be released as well when we, when we touch ourselves, if it's at least 20 seconds or more. <laughs> oh, Wow. No, yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm asking for. I think um, I love to end the podcast with like some really practical things that people can just do 
just like for like a minute of the day just to like feel more feel more embodied so those are some really helpful things I love you had so many I like examples I'm just gonna say again and I'll say again at the end end but everybody should read your book because it's very very helpful um yes the pleasure is all yours it's got a really pretty cover too by the way that really caught my oh thank um, you but anyway my last question is the most important of all of the questions uh Rachel would you rather have a family of giraffes living inside of your house with you and you guys are just like roommates you don't really you could hang out if you want but you don't have to uh the ceilings are lifted like all the like technical things are like figured out so the giraffes can be comfortable living in your house they have a different refrigerator than you it's like way higher up and you just live with giraffes and you have people come over and they don't like they come over and they say oh you live with giraffes and it's just super normal for you you're like yeah that's my roommate um Jim over there and he's just like 20 feet tall or would you rather your career become a secret agent for hmm otters otters so you're a secret agent for the otter world nobody can know you do it you can do others like you could still keep doing uh the career that you have right now but you now have a secret other career that you are solving crime for the otter world activism for the otters all that kind of thing and you make a lot of really good otter friends but you can't tell anyone that you do it oh wow now do you ask this question of everybody at the end or is this my special question this is your special. Oh, question. Wow. <laughs> well, and and can I can I have my giraffe roommates and still have my profession, or was that? I, I guess I wasn't sure if I had to pick. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Your life is super normal. You just have giraffes as roommates. Yeah, super normal. Aside from that, <laughs> um, I'm yeah. I, I mean, I think I want to go for that. Um, yeah, I think that. You know, I bet they're very friendly. <laughs> yeah. I am I am an animal lover, I will say that, but I never really thought much. As long as I wasn't, you know, uh, uh, harming them and they were able to enjoy oh, their no. natural habitat. <laughs> it's totally their choice. They're super cool with it. You guys are like equal roommates. I love it. I love it. I think I would choose that too because I think if I was the secret agent for otters, I would become too emotionally invested and if I couldn't solve something i just wouldn't be able to sleep and i couldn't tell anyone about it because no one could know about my otter world that would be tough so this is de definitely different from any last question i've gotten from the podcast interviews i've been doing so thank you <laughs> thank you for you know mixing things up a little bit ruffling my fe the feathers here. Oh, like, oh yeah oh you're welcome i love to end on it i like it, it asking these kind of questions used to be what uh during meal times and in treatment for the eating disorder, I would ask these questions. We'd all start asking them to people around the table because everyone was so uncomfortable because it was like, you're at an eating disorder treatment center and you're all sitting there staring at a big cheeseburger. Obviously, everyone's uncomfortable. And so it became like my favorite thing. And I was like, I'm going to end every interview with a random question well what a neat way to like connect to creativity and kind of you know fantasy and i think that that's something that people have less and less of like, like i mean it used to be before screens all the time you know people would just have moments where they were you know when they were kind of in between things or bored where they would maybe be in their creative mind or fantasy mind so good for you for tapping into <laughs> that you know we were probably pretty cerebral for the 40 yeah. minutes before that 
Oh, yeah. Well, I, I'm happy that you enjoyed that, too. Um, Rachel, where can people find you? Where can people find your books, social media, all the things? DrRachelAllen.com, A-L-L-Y-N is my last name. Um, and then my Instagram is also DrRachelAllen. Um, yeah, that's the main place. Because then you can link to my book website and where I list retreats and events and everything. Um, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I will be putting all that in the show notes below. Is there, oh, you said the book link is in that. We can find that from there. Yeah. My, on my website, I can link to the, to my website for my book, which is the pleasure is all yours book. And then I'm now, okay. now I'm doing kind of a developing YouTube channel and all that too, but I think it's connected oh. all on my main website. So, okay, cool. Well, I will put those links below and I will definitely be checking out your YouTube channel. Cause that's very cool. Um, but anyway, Rachel, thank you so, so, so much for all of your time and all of your, the whole conversation. Thank you very, very much. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Jackie. Yeah, me as well. The pleasure was all mine as well. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll see you later. Okay, bye-bye. If you guys are enjoying the Unity Project podcast and you want to support me and get more involved in what I'm doing, then you can go check out my Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash JackieGTV. That is where you can support me for as little as $1 a month. Or if you'd like to learn more about my story and how I got from there to here type of thing, then you can check out my book, Finding Home. If you want to pick up a copy of that, then either send me a DM on Instagram or check out my website. All of that information, the links will be in the description box below.